Chris Hahn here on the Aggressive Progressive Podcast. We don't just talk about progressive politics. We tell you how to win because that's what being an aggressive progressive is. Check us out every Tuesday. New episodes on Pandora, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't miss a week. The Aggressive Progressive Podcast with Chris Hahn. You are now listening to Bigfoot and Beyond, featuring the OG bad boys of Bigfoot, the Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive of Squatchology, the Chip and Dale of Bigfoot, and I'm not talking about the cartoon. Please welcome your hosts, the Bigfoot celebrity couple, Biff Clobo, better known as Cliff Berrickman and James Bobo Pay. Hey, Bobo, good morning. How are you doing today? Good, man. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Put out a couple fires here at the museum. Like I fixed the toilet, for example. Had some technical issues for the last couple of days. But beyond that, everything's smooth sailing from here on out. And if it's not, I'll just, you know, pout over here in the corner. I could have used you earlier. I broke a toilet. Oh, no. <laughs> just um. kidding. <laughs> it survived. It but, survived. Um, okay, Cliff, today we got your friend and mine, Jeff. The Crypto Bruce Banner Stewart, formerly known as the Crypto Hulk, but since he's had his dramatic weight loss, I call him Bruce Banner because he's not like the big Hulk anymore. Oh, Jeff. Yeah, of course, we, we, you went out Bigfooting with us on the Texas episode of Finding Bigfoot, if I remember right. Is that correct? Definitely. Had such a great time with you guys. Fantastic. Well, it's nice to talk to you again. So you've been dropping weight, Bobo says, so you're no longer the Hulk. You're the Bruce Banner. I'm I'm still the Hulk. Uh, I'm not small by any means, but I have lost 200 pounds um, since the last time you guys saw me. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Congratulations on that. That's fantastic, man. I know. Fantastic. Fantastic, Jeff. Thanks for joining us. I can't wait to hear what you've been up to lately. Man, this is this is my honor. I mean, my pleasure. You know, of course, uh, uh, Bobo and I, we, we stay in contact quite regular and you know, uh, oh gosh, man, just just made such good friends uh, doing the show with you guys, and that was that was the best thing that ever came out of doing the show, show with y'all was making the the friendships. Yeah, for sure. I, I I don't know if a lot of people know Jeff is a master of the outdoors. I mean, he's a great hunter, but he's also a naturalist. I mean, he knows everything out there. It's like going out with uh, John Mayanchinsky or. You know, one of those, uh, Dr. Russ Jones, you know, just someone that you can ask any question to, and they, they got an answer. And he can identify every sound, and he can also mimic every sound pretty much we heard out there. That's one of the things that I remember most about him is that his uncanny ability to mimic the sounds. Like, he would just throw them something like, oh, do this animal, and they would do it. And he would do it. This kind of frog, and he would do it. It was it was weird and ridiculous. My kind of guy. <laughs> Well, oh, very cool. Bobo, you've been in constant contact with Jeff basically since the show. I have not, so I don't know what's been going on. So why don't you take the lead, Bobo, and tell us what we're going to talk about here. First, I want to know if you had any updates on that spot you took me for my overnight when I was doing my solo. And also, it's where you got that footage with Les Stroud. Is that place still active? It is active. It's not as active as it was. Uh, sad to say, about 150 acres of my woods have been cut which affected some, not everything. All it did basically was move the activity further into the river bottom. 
And so we're still having good activity, a lot of vocalizations, a lot of uh, class B type interactions and things like that. Haven't had any class A's in quite a while, but there's still, you know, anecdotal evidence you can see, uh, still find some uh, tracks and still find things that are odd you know uh, large rocks that shouldn't be moved that are moved uh, trees big, big like uh, where they've been cut off for for logging that you come in one day and it's in a certain position come in a week later and it's been moved and there's been no human uh, activity uh, you can tell there, there's no uh, tire marks or anything where anyone's driven in there is that like structures or just one single log uh, log moved just like one log moved like you'll come back and they will have moved a log across a trail or across something uh you can tell maybe they're trying to deter foot traffic or something along those lines uh i find very very few structures i don't find any of the uh reported stick glyphs or whatever you want to call them you know they, where they take and take some sticks and make different symbols on the grounds and things like that I, I don't find any of that um i've had one or two structures that have been found which looked more like uh, a beaver dam that had been constructed on land hmm. you know a beaver hut is as you might want to call it that had been constructed on land and there are mountain beavers and different things but we don't have those here we don't have anything on land that would build a structure like that. So, Jeff, uh, just just so I know what we're talking about exactly here, are you talking about the property where we did the investigation of the show? I, I think Matt and I were together. I don't know if Renee was there or not, and then you and Bobo were elsewhere. Is this that same property? This is the property where you and I went and filmed the reenactment. Oh, I see. That was another. Yeah, that was a fantastic location and excellent habitat. It was a jungle in there. Um, it, yeah. it, it really is. And it's growing back. You know, they cut the timber, but you know, the only good thing here is whenever they come in and they cut some of that old growth, the new growth that starts coming back, the greens and the things that are coming back are more palatable. And I know as far as deer and other wildlife go, they really love the browse. If I can find evidence that the Sasquatch may feed on some of the same vegetation that these deer enjoy. And so, therefore, when this new growth comes back, it's kind of like a, a, a delicacy, a smorgasbord or whatever you, you would say, for them to be able to come in and have this tender, succulent new growth. I think that's a solid hypothesis. I mean, deer need highly nutritious plants, um, whereas things like elk, they don't need as nutritionally packed uh, plants to eat because they have a way larger gut and therefore longer intestinal tract that they can extract the nutrients out of. But deer don't have that. And I think that is part of the secret of or part of the the, the, it's a clue for us of why Sasquatches are seen in places like roadsides and power line cuts and all that railway places because the deer are seen there as well. And so I think the Sasquatches are not only going after the deer, but also going after the plants that the deer eat. I think that would be their first choice as far as uh, what kind of plants to forage on. 100% agree with that. A lot of people don't know that the state, I know here in Texas, plants, crimson clover and two or three other different types of clover 
along the sides of the roads because they're very good at stopping erosion and they grow very quickly and they're, they're very hardy. And the other aspect of it, that is a deer's favorite greenery to eat is clovers. Therefore, it would, and it's even palatable for you and I to eat. If you've ever been a kid, you've picked clover and eaten it. It's kind of sour and everything. So it would really uh, just solidify a, a theory to say that it would be not beyond the realm of thought that the Bigfoot would enjoy eating that greenery as well. Are you finding that evidence in scat you're finding? The scat that I find, you can tell that there is a lot of greenery, a lot of these different uh, uh, plants in it. It's just, you know, I can't say for sure that I'm finding Bigfoot scat because, of course, we don't know, you know, it's not been tested and say, oh, yeah, this is Bigfoot scat. But it doesn't match the scat from white-tailed deer, and it doesn't match the scat from anything other than possibility that it could be feral hog because feral hog feces, in some instances, depending on what they're feeding on, can resemble uh, a more human-like feces than, say, deer or rabbit or any other fauna that's here in the East Texas, other than maybe bear. But, you know, seeing a, a black bear here where I'm at is as rare as seeing a Bigfoot. So when you find these things that are suspected Sasquatch scat, where are you finding it? Because I know they don't usually just leave it out on the middle of a trail. You know, you'll find odd things. I have found spots you're walking through the woods and you see a little mound that is out of the ordinary. And me, I'm the type of person I investigate everything. So if even if it's bobcat scat or some other feline or whatever that might tend to cover something, I go over and investigate and you'll find something that you know is not a cat. It's not a bobcat. It's not a mountain lion. It's not anything like that. The smell is different. The the look of it, the texture, everything is different. And of course, you can't prove that it's Bigfoot, you know, because we don't have anything to compare it to that is known Bigfoot, scat or anything else for that matter. So, you know, you just have to look at it, take pictures of it, document it, write it down. And, you know, in some cases, you know, take a Ziploc bag and get you a little sample and put it in the deep freeze and hope one day you get the money to have it tested. It tastes different, too. <laughs> you know, that, that, that is one of those things, a uh, little side note, pulled a, a prank, and I do this quite often to people that I take on expeditions and in the woods and things like that, is I'll take raisinets and put them in my pocket. And when we're going through the woods, I'll see some deer scat. And I will pick that up and I'll look at it and you know I, I can tell how old it is and different things by the texture, how dried out it is and different things. And then I'll take a raisinette out of my pocket and I'll throw it in my mouth while I've got the deer scat in my hand and I'll taste of it. And I'm like, oh, he ate this exact kind of grass at this exact whatever. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. And, you know, and I went as far as to get uh, someone to be ready to throw an actual piece of deer dropping in their mouth. And I'm like, ah, don't do it. <laughs> you know, just just out of fun. You're, t- you're too kind to them, Jeff. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages.
If you're still using one of the big wireless providers this year, have you asked yourself what you're paying for? Between expensive retail stores, inflated prices, and hidden fees, you're being taken advantage of because they know you'll pay. Enter Mint Mobile. Mint Mobile provides the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, then passes those savings directly to you. Mint Mobile makes it easy to cut your wireless bill down to just 15 bucks a month. Every plan comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. With Mint Mobile, stop paying for unlimited data you'll never use. Choose between plans with 3, 8, or 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and keep your same phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch your old wireless bill and start saving with Mint Mobile. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash bigfoot. That's mintmobile.com slash bigfoot. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash bigfoot. Sonidos of our music. Sonidos of our voices. Sonidos of our stories. Listen to the sounds and voices of Latin music and culture with Pandora stations like RMX, La Vida en Pop, El Pulso, and Satellites, and podcasts like Ruby Rosa and more. From music to stories, all that we are is in the sonidos of our culture. Listen now on Pandora. So you think that Sasquatches cover their scat like they'll just drop it in the forest and cover it like a cat? I believe that they use different techniques in different locations. When they're in a location where they know human traffic is higher and more likely to find that, I think they they, they go to lengths to cover their uh, visible footprint in an area where it's likely to be found. I've encountered only two reports so far where the um, the observer, the witness, saw the Sasquatch take a dump. Um, one of them was Glenn Thomas, actually. Uh, Glenn Thomas, in one of his three encounters with Sasquatches back in the late 1960s, saw one of these things uh, crap in a river. And, and then it wiped its hand and whatever, it wiped its ass with its hand and kept going, basically. And uh, Bender Noggle said this is a, what, he, what were the words, decisively uh, simian gesture, I think is what he said. Um, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, I, back in the day, I had an iguana as a pet. And it was and one of the things we had to do is make sure it took a dump like every couple of days or something like that. And the only way we can get it going is by putting it in water, essentially. And I know that, you know, if I'm wading around in a creek or something, I suddenly have to pee, you know, that sort of thing. It kind of said, well, well, that's kind of interesting that it had to go in the river to take a dump. And it also might be indicative of why we so rarely find potential Sasquatch scat. And then the other report that I got is a secondhand report, but it came from Dr. Jeff Meldrum. Um, Dr. Meldrum was telling me, I believe he was interviewing a, uh, um, a tribal member on the Yakima reservation. And I want to say he might've been a police officer, but I don't remember. Um, but anyway, this guy saw Sasquatch and was following it through the woods from a distance. And I guess at one point he saw the Sasquatch, uh, you know, take a dump and then covered it 
like a cat would cover its scat in the woods, which, of course, supports that they're probably hiding these things to some degree. Um, but e- either case, you know, though, maybe they do both of those things. Maybe both of these reports are erroneous. We don't know. But um, if even one of them is true, we, we're kind of but we've got our uh, challenge ahead of us because these things apparently are hiding not only themselves, but all signs of themselves, including their scat. Exactly. Exactly. You know, that I've only had my own experience. I haven't ever had anyone else report to me that they found what they thought was Bigfoot scat or, you know, saw even saw like you're, we're talking about there, you know, even saw anything like that. Um, and I have no proof, solid proof that the scat that I have found is Bigfoot, you know, there because again, there, there's been no tests done of it. And there's no, even if we do a test, there's nothing to compare it to. And whenever you do uh, tests on scat, then you get all of the DNA of everything that has been eaten by the creature and the DNA from the bacteria in the gut. So, you know, really proven something is something through scat it's very difficult have you found scat in conjunction with tracks no the most of the scat i found is on ground that was way too hard it was like a lot of leaf litter but the uh, the ground underneath the leaf litter was very hard so there really wasn't any tracks but what i did find was where they raked the leaves up over the scat i, I don't want to i don't want to say hand because, of course, I have no proof, but just from what it looked like, it did not fit a coyote's paw. It did not fit a bobcat's paw. It did not. What was on the ground where they raked, you could see the digits, so to speak, looked more human in nature than anything that is known to be in the East Texas woods. So Jeff, like, like, so you you've got all you've got a vast repertoire of um, wildlife vocalizations at your disposal in your own voice box. You can imitate all these sounds out there, um, and probably um, uh, also Sasquatch sounds. Have you found that making the sounds of other animals besides Sasquatches have drawn the attention of the local Bigfoots in any way? Yes. A long time ago, I totally abandoned doing the reported. Sasquatch sounds whenever I was out in the woods. Being a student of game sounds, wildlife sounds, you come to understand that certain sounds mean certain things to animals. And if we don't know what those sounds are saying, sometimes you're better off not saying You can get a response, but you're not going to get that encounter you want like face to face you know close enough to get a picture or or any of those things so i have found that using animal distress sounds and uh animal husbandry type sounds i get a different response i'm not going to necessarily say a better response but i get a different response than i get from using a howl or a scream or a yell or even a wood knock what sort of responses are are you finding just difference in the vocalizations instead of getting a you know scream or a yell back you sometimes you get the chatter back sometimes if uh, i've been uh, in close proximity to a few Whenever I was on a creek bank, especially this one incident was just 
very intriguing, very hair raising. Was sitting on a on a creek bank, and I often have them throw sticks at me. We don't have rocks a lot around my creek banks here in East Texas, but I'll find that they'll throw sticks at me. And this time a stick came in. Well, I threw back. Well, I started making some uh, very whimpering type sounds, like a like a puppy or something like that would whimper to show submission or show friendliness. And in the distance, maybe, you know, 60, 80 yards out into the woods, I hear the, the chatter. And the only thing that I can equate it to is I'm, I've heard the, you know, what was it? The samurai chatter or whatever that was recorded or whatever. This sounded more like just a, garbled like if you ever are flipping radio stations or something on an old tuner type deal and it's going by those stations and it's just kind of a flip 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 like that it was more of of just a choppy broken vocalization and i get that whenever i use a submissive animal type call like i said like a puppy a whimpering puppy type thing and interesting yeah. Where whenever I use the more assertive vocalizations, the screams, the howls, the things like that, that's what I get back is a more assertive, more dominant vocalization of a howl or a scream or, or, or even just a more aggressive return from what I, I gave. That's interesting. What percentage of the time you go out do you think you get responses of any sort? Maybe... Two to three percent. Very rare then. Okay. Very, very rare. Uh, that's one of the things that always gets me um, whenever I, I talk to people and they're like, oh, man, I've got I've got them on my property and I, I interact with them every day, every night, every day and every night. And, and I'm going, really? Every single day? Every single night? Now, I know there are properties that have more activities than some and everything, but my my Stance with that is this. If you have that level of activity, finding evidence, concrete evidence, should be a no-brainer. I mean, it should be something that a high school kid could go do if they're there every single day. They would have to be leaving some sort of trace evidence, whether it's hair, whether it's feces, whether it's, you know, urine or there's something. And getting a, a picture of them, a trail cam picture or anything, ought to be just easy if they're there 365 days a year. Yeah, that's a lot of opportunity to fail at if you have nothing to show for that level of activity. When I've gone to a location where they've said, they're here all the time, it's always been coyotes or sometimes barred owls. Barred owls, uh, uh, screech owls. We have a lot of screech owls here in Texas, the north and uh, east Texas. So, you know, they, they actually, I mean, have this amazingly loud screech that you can hear for miles. And this is a bird that, that's the size of a pigeon. It's like one of the smallest owl species. And they're that loud. And I, during the breeding season, these owls make, especially the barred owl, they make some of the most amazing sounds. Pops, clicks, uh, they growl. 
um, they scream, they holler, they they have uh, a chatter that they do that you can hear throughout the woods during the breeding season. And of course, I get sent audio clips constantly. And you know, people get so mad at me because I'll message them back and I'll say, "You you caught a wonderful vocalization, but sorry to tell you, it was an owl." Or you know, people don't know that that. Uh, red fox and gray fox make just dozens of different vocalizations and uh, they actually don't bark that they they do more of a of a oh, it's just this gruff sound it's it, it's not it's kind of a cross between a bark and a howl that mm-hmm. they make it's just amazing and people catch those and they're like well, i've never heard this before in my life and i'm like right no i've been in the woods since i was eight years old and i've never heard this just because you never heard it doesn't mean that the fox didn't make that sound. True that. Hey, Jeff, I was going to ask you, what's the most interesting thing you've discovered about Sasquatch behavior in all your years of study? It's it's, it's so hard to say because everything I ever discovered was amazing to me. Because once I had my, my initial face-to-face sighting when I was a kid, when I was 15, after that, Everything was amazing because it's like the veil had been pulled back from my eyes. And some of the things that I had been seeing in the woods since I was a small child and just dismissed or thought, wow, that's weird, you know, became, wait a minute, there's a reason behind this, you know, finding uh, a, a sapling that's probably maybe about big around as a soda can that had been ripped out of the ground by its roots, turned upside down, and then shoved back down into the ground. And there's nothing here in East Texas that can do that. You've got to have dexterity of fingers in order to pull something like that, grab it, grip it, pull it up. Um, Even though, you know, it wasn't some big, huge oak, you know, it was still beyond, I'm a very, very strong person. It was beyond my level of strength. I mean, back then, I was back when I was playing college football, and I could bench press 400 pounds, and I couldn't have pulled that up. So something like that was like a, a one of those moments whenever your mind really – it's almost like a drug because your mind expands. You know, people always say, oh, this is a mind-altering drug. Well, Sasquatch is a mind-altering drug in, a, in an aspect because once that veil is pulled back and you start seeing things and recognizing things, it becomes two, one of two things. It's either going to become one of the greatest joys of your life in experiences and adventures, or it's going to become a curse because you're not going to be able to just walk out there and lay hands on it, and it's going to be frustrating. So you have to look at it like, you know, this is one of the greatest adventures. Is there something that you found out on your own? Like, because I mean, a lot of times you you'll read, you know, other, or listen to other people talk, and you'll hear their accounts. You're like, oh, that's what that is, this or that, and then you look for it, then you find it. Is there something you found yourself that you hadn't heard before? You know, weren't aware of that other researchers talking about. I know this is bad as me, but I don't listen to a lot of other researchers because I don't want to. I do a lot of face to face talking. But I don't want to taint my own view of things. I know a lot of times, coming from a a hunting standpoint, I've been out with a lot of people. I've guided a lot of people. 
and you listen to them talk. And if I hadn't already formed 100% my own way of thinking, train of thought on the way I hunt, my ethics and everything else, I could easily be skewed to believing something that wasn't true or going down a path of, of research that would lead me away from doing what I think I need to do. Now, I don't disrespect anybody. I don't disrespect their theories, don't disrespect their their ideologies, anything. That's them. That's theirs. Now, I don't do any of the woo-woo kind of stuff. But my my, I guess some of my biggest uh, influences in, in all of this are going to be the more old school guys and the guys that uh, really know. They're actually, you know, boots on the ground. There's so many people today that I'm trying so hard not to be rude to anyone. There's so many people as far as uh, social media goes that. They create a profile, and, and two days later, they're they're a Bigfoot quote-unquote expert, you know. And I know you guys probably are, are just like me. You know, I, I don't believe in Bigfoot experts. I think there are people that are experts in Bigfoot legends, Bigfoot lore, and experts on the Bigfoot data that is out there today. But we don't have any Bigfoot experts. Agreed. So I just try to I try to stay in my lane a little bit, uh, base my stuff being a, a wildlife expert, uh, which is something that, you know, hey, I've, I've been to the schools, I've been to the fields and stuff. So I can actually say that because I've, you know, studied wildlife. So uh, I, I stick to my lane kind of, you know, I don't speak too much on, you know, DNA because I'm not a DNA expert. I don't speak much on uh, things that I have no knowledge of. I let people that have that knowledge speak on that knowledge. And then if it's too far out there, I'll give an opinion. But, you know, I see so many people on there that, that just go on this big, long rant about, uh, you know, DNA and this, that, and the other. And then you ask them, well, you know, where did you study uh, I don't know. What did you study? Microbiology? I mean, what did you study to get this big hypothesis? Well, you know, I graduated from Jimmy Joe's high school with a, <laughs> you know, 2.5 grade point average and, you know, ha- had a semester at the community college, but I'm a DNA expert. So right. <laughs> that's where I kind of draw my line is, you know, uh, I want to stay talking about uh, things that I know, which is wildlife, and approach my research from a wildlife standpoint. Now, somebody else proves that, you know, some of this other stuff is is possible. You know, there's a lot of theories out there as far as uh, extraterrestrial aspects on that and everything. And, you know, that's great. If that's your corner of, of the research realm, get after it. But I'm going to stay in my lane. Stay tuned for more Bigfoot and Beyond with Cliff and Bobo. We'll be right back after these messages. What patterns have you noticed? Have you noticed any patterns or seasonality or that weather-related patterns to your activity with Sasquatches? Yes, uh, especially here in Texas. A um, lot of patterns, summertime. I don't do a whole lot of researching because when it is 110 degrees in the shade, 
there's there's little to no activity. Which you know, if you were walking around in a fur coat in the middle of Texas summer, you're probably not going to be out doing much either. So you know, I think uh, my activity slows down uh, when the months first start cooling off. You know, uh, uh, end of September, middle of October, the nights start cooling down. You start getting uh, start getting more activity, and by more activity, you know, you start hearing those vocalizations again that you heard last winter. You start seeing more uh, tracks and things like that. And, you know, around here, a lot of tracks, there's a lot of tracks that I find in sand because the creek banks that they travel are all sand. So there's really not a lot of definition in some of these tracks that you find because of the type of soil that you find them in. So I don't I don't take a lot of plaster casts and things because, you know, it's got the general outline of a foot. But unless you walk up on it within 10 minutes of it being made it within 10, 15 minutes, it's already started started to decay. So, you know, the sand, especially if it's dry summertime, that sand starts to fill itself back in and, you know, wind, just everything affects it and. You can take a cast and say, oh, look what I found. And somebody looks at it and says, okay, you found something that was in the general shape of a foot. Yeah, but they, they have to be eating even in the summer when it's hot for like four or five months when it's cooking down there. So do you think they build up food caches or something like that? Or how do you think, do you have any theory? I know we don't know, but do you have any theories about what they're doing for sustenance? Some of the theories that I work, work with is I think that Sasquatch has a specialized gut. I think they have special bacteria in their gut, just like uh, certain animals do, even dogs, that they can eat extremely putrid meats and things like that without getting sick. We've got six million feral hogs here in Texas. Not that hard to hunt down and kill a hog. Plus, there's a lot of roadkill and different things. And in my opinion, I think they may make caches of... uh, meats and different things during the wintertime. They may store them uh, underground, maybe. They may store them in creeks and things like that, that it remains cool. Um, I know we found uh, deer carcasses here in Texas. There's been two or three sent to me pictures where there was a deer 15 feet up in a tree, or there was a hog carcass 15 feet up in a tree. Um up like that, it would dry out and almost become jerky in a, in a matter of weeks. And if you didn't come along and find it, then something else could come along, get it back out of the tree, take it and hide it. Uh, I think if they have this type of specialized gut, then they would be able to, say, take a 200-pound hog and drag it off into the bushes. Well, they would need to come back out of those bushes for possibly weeks while they fed on this carcass, the more uh, putrefied, the more insects would come, and the, the, the maggots and the different insects that would be feeding on would just add to the protein that the Sasquatch was able to eat off the carcass. And I think that they could possibly feed on these carcasses until they just get so uh, putrid that there's just nothing left there for them to eat. I know that, they, that their stomachs can handle some stuff because... Uh some of my contacts on the Navajo res up in the high, real high desert where it's, you know, bitter cold winters. They had some really rough seasons, a lot of deer die off and all that. And the Sasquatches, there was two of them were coming in 
and raiding the outhouses and flipping the outhouses over and eating the actual just excrement out of the outhouse, frozen excrement. They were finally where they were tearing off chunks. They could see big nail, not claws, but nail marks, like big hands going and tearing off chunks of frozen scat. Well, that, that's not really that far out there to think about because as human beings, we don't digest a majority of what we put into our bodies. A lot of what we eat comes back out of our bodies. Uh, of course, we don't dig through our own scat to see what's still in there. But, you know, a lot of things do not totally break down and digest. So it would not uh, surprise me at all. I, I have not experienced that, but it would not surprise me at all that they would find that to be a viable source if their body could uh, digest it and not get sick from the, the bacteria and whatever, you know, that's in the, the, the feces. So that spot we were talking about where you took us, is that still your honey hole or do you have a more active spot since then? Actually, uh, that's still pretty much kind of a honey hole, but I obtained another uh, 135 acres that joins that property. And I've been down in there. I actually went down in there uh, with the Expedition Texas guys. I took them down in there with me uh, one night and had a similar situation to you and I. Uh, actually got the chance to call another, an owl in for these guys, too, which was, was pretty exciting. They wanted me to do some of my sounds and I, uh, owls and stuff like that, and I started doing them. And within about uh, five minutes, I had a really nice barred owl that came in and was uh, about 15 or 20 feet over our heads. So that was pretty cool. But uh, the new property uh, joins the old property, so there's the same uh same animals on it and everything, but it has more, a lot thicker vegetation. Um, you've literally got to get down on your hands and knees to crawl through some of this stuff. I'm sure you're doing it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and that's what I wanted because I wanted that, that you know, uh, sanctuary type uh, feel, you know, because nobody else is going to be crawling in there. No hunters, no fishermen, nobody that's going to, you know, uh, uh, collect berries or anything like that. Nobody else is going to get down and crawl through these briar vines and berry vines and things like that that all have uh, uh, stickers on them. Uh, nobody's going to crawl in through that, but yet you see places where somebody has crawled through it. And I'm on my hands and knees going through that spot. <laughs> How often do you find uh, suspected Bigfoot hares? You know, that, that again, it's kind of like the uh, interaction and stuff like that. You know, maybe a, a couple of times a year at the most. Is it like the human hair or have you looked at it under a microscope to see if it has that red tinge or the lack of a medulla? I've looked at a lot of it through under under microscopes and things. And, you know, the biggest thing that I find is that, you know, of course, you know, you can pluck a, a hair out of your own head and look at it so you can see the structure of the human hair. And you can, I've got plenty of dogs and uh, access to raccoon and bobcat and different things like that. And you put them under the microscope and they don't match. Uh, you know, cow hair, different things like that, they don't match. 
that, that so it, it's one of those deals where you find several hairs over the course of eight, 10, 15 years, and you find those hairs, and those hairs match, but they don't match any animals that I've been able to compare them to here in the East Texas woods. You're putting these things under a microscope, huh? Yeah, you know, just a cheap microscope, of course. I mean, it's you know something you buy off Amazon. You don't need it, much. You know, just just something to compare to make a comparison. Right. And I, you know, I even I, I donated some of these uh, hairs that I, I've had uh, to a DNA study. Not gonna not gonna mention any names. Don't want to create a war. People have attacked me in the past for mentioning names, but I donated them to a DNA study that kind of went off the rails. Of course, you know, oh, this is 100%, this is Sasquatch hair. And then you're like, well, what did you compare it to? Is there known Sasquatch hair in GenBank, which GenBank is the end-all, be-all database for DNA Every animal, known animal, I think there's like over 200,000 species in GenBank. And I'm like, so you compared it to a known sample. Where did we get a known sample? So we say it's 100% Sasquatch, but we didn't compare it to anything. Henner Fehrenbach did a lot of work on sa- um, p- potential Sasquatch hair. You know, like you're saying, we don't, we don't know for sure. But there are certain things about it that uh, would indicate that it's from an ape or an ape-like animal, et cetera. And there's basically four criteria that you're looking for under a microscope when you're looking at potential Sasquatch hair. Uh, number one, it's going to shine reddish color. No matter what color it looks like, it's going to shine red when backlit. So there's going to be a reddish sort of tinge to it. Uh, secondly, it's going to have mostly parallel sides with no taper. Um, if it tapers, that is not a Sasquatch hair because ape hair, including human hair, doesn't do that. And it will have a blunt end. That's the third thing. Um, it's not going to be cut and it's not going to be tapered. It's going to have a blunt end on it. So if you can get the the hair, or the, the full length of the hair that hasn't been broken off, um, that, that'll help a lot. And then finally, the medulla, the center shaft, which is like the pencil mm-hmm. lead inside of the hair. It should either be absent or fragmentary at best. Um, so those are the four criteria that um, Henner Fehrenbach came up with as his golden standard. And um, to analyze to that level, it's completely free as long as you have access to a, micro, uh, a microscope well, of some sort. Exactly. And one of the other thing is the fact that they have hair, not fur. Right. Yeah. There is a huge difference between hair and fur. Primates have hair. Animals such as, you know, uh, raccoons and foxes and uh, bobcats and all of that, they have fur. And looking at those under the microscope, there, there's no, no way you can confuse the two, you know, hair and fur. Yeah, and of course, yeah. hair looks like human hair, and fur would have right. two two layers on it, like the undercoat that creates the airspace that warms it up, like a you know, like a wetsuit, and then the overcoat as well. I think the guard hair or something. I think is the actual term yes, for it. Yes. But it's, it's called guard hairs, and you know, there's just uh, like you like you were talking about the the absence of the medulla. That's the biggest thing that I look for whenever I throw it under the microscope and I look at this stuff. That that if it's a hair and you see uh, a medulla, solid uh, medulla in there, then you're immediately you're like, well, nope, <laughs> nope. Yeah. And yeah. so it goes in, it, I keep it, but it goes into the note pile. 
right. and you find one that has no medulla or like you said a fragmented uh, medulla then you're like okay well this is impossible this is an absolute positive maybe and you put it over here into this pile that you know you're like one day you know and a lot of people when they say you know do you why don't you get that tested a lot of people don't understand how expensive it is to test samples uh, to have send a sample to a lab um, and have somebody test it. It's not. It's not a, a fifty dollar prospect. You know, it's not like you can put it in a box and send it off to Ancestry DNA or or uh, uh, one of these places and and get them to test it. And they're going to send it back and tell you, oh, that's Bigfoot. You know, you can't do that. You have to go to it like a reputable lab and you know ha- have somebody uh, that's an actual scientist. Uh, test this stuff, and, and it gets pretty daggum pricey. Oh, thousands yeah. of dollars. Thousands yeah. of dollars. Yes. Hey, Jeff, yes. What, how, how long are the... Because one thing that's always I've found super odd is that down in the south, like the Skunk Apes and out through through Texas, you know, Florida through Texas, where it's hot as hell in the summer, we get those reports of these super shaggy, long-haired Bigfoots. Then up in, you know, up in Alberta or something up in northern Canada, well, People see when they have like short coat, like two to four inch hair. What length hair do you generally find that you th- suspect are Sasquatch? Everything that I've seen with my own two eyes, which both of my sightings were in summertime, little to no hair at okay. all. I mean, there there was hair, and it was hanging, and it was it was longer hair, but it was pretty fine and pretty sparse. That's one of the things that when people start telling me and giving me their reports of sightings here, I really discount a lot of sightings because when they tell me that they saw a 10-foot-tall, 1,000-pound, 1,500-pound creature with long, thick hair all over its body in the middle of July in Texas, I'm going, no, I'm sorry. That coming from a wildlife expert, kind of uh, standpoint does not make sense at all. I've, I've read and talked to so many, I've read so many reports and talked to so many witnesses, you know, down in Georgia, Florida, whatever, and they report thick, shaggy, long hair. And I always thought, how could that be? Yeah, I don't, I, I, honestly, I don't want to call anyone, uh, you know, bad words, you know, like they're lying or anything like that. But I just think maybe it is uh, misinterpreted. They saw it. And, you know, we have a fight or flight response that's programmed into our brains for millions of years. And sometimes that fight or flight response makes things look worse than they are, scarier than they are. And I think a lot of people are, are having this phenomena happen to them whenever they are reporting the uh, Sasquatch that they see as being bigger, more uh, menacing, and more hair-covered because all of the TV shows that they watch pretty much uh, have creatures and describe creatures from the Pacific Northwest or from um, some northern, colder region of the United States. And those, those reports accurately, you know, say, you know, hey, we got this long-haired or longer-haired, thick-haired uh, creature. 
You know, Jeff, I, I know we only have you for a, a, a limited amount of time because you have some obligations you have to go take care of. But um, I would like to hear your sighting reports one more time. Because I, I spoke to you when we were filming in Texas, but the people who are listening may not know about your sightings. And I think they would really enjoy listening to you recount them for us, if you wouldn't mind. My first sighting happened in the mid-80s, sometime around 1985. I was about 15 years old. Some friends and I were camping out on the Sabine River in Panola County here in East Texas. We had a fishing camp and hunting camp that was on a very, very large piece of land. Uh, there's one road in, one road out. You can now also access this property by coming up or down the river, but you would have to tra traverse miles of the river in order to get to this piece of property. So it's not an easy access no matter what. The road going in has three locked gates you have to go through to get to this property. We were camping for an extended length of time like we always did. We went and fished that day, and we'd caught uh, quite a, a, what we call a mess of catfish. Um, we came back. We have an old hand pump uh, well there that we got our water. We'd clean our fish there so we could wash them and everything. We cleaned our fish. We left the uh, entrails, the guts and things on the ground. And what we would do is we would uh, come back during the middle of the night and we would see if there were any raccoons or anything eating on the entrails. I made a lot, a lot of my money as a teenager by selling uh, fur, hides. Uh, in those days, a raccoon hide would bring $25. And, uh, I would, you know, sometimes get 10, 15 of those a week. So that was the deal for going, you know, leaving the uh, entrails there. We went, we uh, cooked our fish for the evening, built our fire. We'd been sitting around the fire. It was possibly uh, 10, 30 or so at night. And I told my friends, I said, hey, let's go see if the guts have any activity on them. And my friends were like, nah, you know, we're not mad at them like you are. You go ahead and go, Stuart. So I grabbed my little flashlight and my little uh, 22 caliber rifle and started walking over. It's probably about 100 uh, yards between where we were camped at and the well. So as I got closer, you know, of course, you're creeping up because you don't want to scare anything off. And I'm creeping up. And if anyone remembers, I'm sure you guys were like me, you remember the, the mid-80s. I mean, we did not have these 1,000 lumen flashlights like we have now that fit in the palm of your hand. You know, you had a big flashlight that took C or D cell and had a yellow bulb and would shine about, you know, 20 to 30 feet. So uh, I'm walking over. As I get closer, I can see that there's something on the guts. And at first, in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, maybe it's uh, two or three raccoons kind of sitting there together, eating on the, on the guts, or maybe it's a feral hog. So I raised my rifle and walked closer and closer. And as I got within, say, about 20 or so feet, it stood up. And it stood up on two legs. And it was facing me. And, of course, you know, I sh I'm shining my light right in this thing's face. And to a kid at that time, there were no, you know, there wasn't a ton of literature like there is now, a ton of TV shows and things. So my uh, uh, knowledge of Sasquatch was only limited to, uh, you know, Creature from Black Lake and uh, Boggy Creek and, you know, a couple of In Search Ofs or something. 
in my mind, I thought this is somebody playing a joke on me. So I spoke to her and I said, Mister, I don't know who you are, but I'll shoot you. Just <laughs> looking at me. Just looking me dead in my eyes. Very Texas. And I'm of shining you. it. I'm shining it in the times, you know. I mean, we're we're three, you know, teenagers, three fifteen-year-old kids down here, and there's not supposed to be anybody else there. Oh, yeah. So in your mind, if there's a, if there's somebody else there, and they didn't walk into your camp and say hi, guys, then they're probably up to no good. So I'm shining this thing in the face, and it's very human, very human. I, I did not see the uh, monkey aspect that you hear reported all the time the gorilla aspect this was very human looking um very wide broad nose very pronounced lips um a longer uh more angled forehead just the, just the way they the way it looked was just that's the only thing that is even close to how about height and weight you know i'm i'm six foot tall and this thing was just a little taller than me you know, we're not talking, you know, seven, eight feet, but we're talking maybe six, four, six, five, somewhere in that area. Weight, you know, we're talking at, from best of my knowledge, because as a teenager, I was not looking at that. But when I'm, I'm looking back in my mind, I'm, I'm going to say somewhere in the 250 to maybe 300 pound range. Very robust, but not just, oh, my God, big. But it was bigger than me. And I'm mean, like I said, I, I, even at that time, I was a big kid. You know, we're talking, I was, you know, six foot tall, 200 pounds. So it was bigger than me. I spoke to it a second time. You know, mister, I don't know who you are. I mean, I'm, I'm really, really scared. I'm going to shoot you. And at that point in time, it took three steps backwards, toe to heel. And this stuck in my mind because no other creature can walk toe to heel but human beings, not Bears, not any other creature that would be in the East Texas woods can walk toe-to-heel. And it walked toe-to-heel to three long strides backwards, still looking me dead in my eyes. And once it reached the edge of the woods, it turned and walked away. That just that, that toe-to-heel stuck with me. It stuck with me in my mind throughout my entire life because I've searched for any other animal. And I'm not even just East Texas animals. Any animal anywhere that can fluidly walk backwards toe to heel and there's none now that was a different report than what you shared with us on the show is that correct now the the one on the show was my second uh, encounter that was my first encounter my second encounter is the one that when i was looking for uh mayhaws that actually came out of the tree close to me it was a little one or something wasn't it uh, a lot smaller, probably my same height, you know, around the exact six foot, five foot ten to six foot, somewhere in that area. And uh, body size is going to be uh, smaller. I won't say it was female. I did not see any breasts, but it was either female or a very young Sasquatch. And I think that may be the whole reason why it interacted the way it did was because it was it was a young one, not experienced and you know, not not as smart, I guess. How often do you hear of them uh, or find evidence of them being in trees since your sighting of one jumping down from one? I have not found any evidence. Now, when I say that, now I'm not carrying ladders around with me and, you know, sticking them up on trees that have uh, 
lower limbs or saddles and climbing up there and looking. Maybe I should be. It's kind of hard to uh, carry a 12-foot ladder around with you in these Texas woods. But uh, I have not found not one piece of evidence since that day that would say, oh, look, you know, something's been sitting up in this tree. Yeah, you're the only uh, report I know of in Texas that I've, you know, that I'm aware of where it was seen in a tree. I've heard it in other states, but not Texas. You know, and I never actually saw it in the tree. Of course, you know, I felt the, I heard the thud and felt the ground behind me kind of, kind of move just a little bit because we were on a dried up uh, slough bed. So I actually, you know, I never saw that, that it's sitting up in the saddle, but, you know, there's no other place it could have come from. Well, we don't want to make you wait, wait for your uh, funeral, Jeff. Yes, I have a sad duty today. I have to go and uh, officiate a very, very uh, uh, close friend's funeral today. So You're a pastor, aren't you? Is that right? You're a pastor, a reverend? or I'm, a, I'm an ordained minister. But still, that that pertains to what we're talking about in some ways, because listen, you're a God-fearing man who is a uh, is honorable and, and hopefully has you know uh, good in his heart, et cetera. That you probably wouldn't be the kind of person to come on and pull the wool over everyone's eyes with these Bigfoot stories. Anybody that has ever known me knows that honor I value above all but my family, and even with my family, it, it's it's honor doing the honorable thing. I don't do the dishonorable thing. I never do the dishonorable thing. Well, I can attest to that. Yeah, I mean, it, well, everyone that knows you knows that. Well, shoot, Jeff, it's been a great uh, chatting with you. It's always informative, and I'm sure everyone listening appreciates you too. Just want to thank you so much for joining us. And it was really good to talk to you again, Jeff. It's been too long. And I want to have you guys out again as soon as possible. I'd love just, you know, no stress of a show, no stress of, you know, recording anything other than just for fun and have you guys down on my place and we'll camp and we'll enjoy a campfire and a cold beer or whatever and a cup of coffee, doesn't matter, and just go out and do some looking and some listening and have a good weekend. That sounds great. Yeah, Count me in. All right, folks, thanks again for tuning in and listening. And just like the Crypto Hulk, Hulk smash button, like. Do it like that. All right, keep it squatchy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Bigfoot and Beyond. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on iTunes. Subscribe to Bigfoot and Beyond wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bigfoot and Beyond Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Bigfoot and Beyond, that's an N in the middle, and tweet us your thoughts and questions with the hashtag Bigfoot and Beyond. 